Information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of Blue Crew Medicine. Uh, Today we're going to do something a little bit more expanding on one of our previous episodes on thyroids. Today we're going to do adrenals. So it's kind of a bridge onto what we've done in the past. Today I'm going to be joined by Matthew Greer, one of our air care flight nurses here at Air Care. Uh, our thyroids episode and kind of wanted to come on for this one. So thanks for coming aboard, brother. Oh, anytime, man. And guys, my name is Will Alpe. I'm one of the air care CCPs and educator for the team here. So let's get right into adrenals. Uh, big thing I think of when I think of adrenals is let's adrenal insufficiency and Cushing's right off the bat. Those are two big things, which are pretty much what everybody gets tested on CFRN, FPC, most of the testing that we get, but there's some other mixed things that go in there and some primary care things every day that we probably may need to take into account for in our world of resuscitative medicine. So getting right into a little bit of pathophysiology. So, uh, adrenal medulla, which secretes epinephrine and norepinephrine every day. Basically, if you have a problem with your adrenal medulla, you don't get as much epi or norepi as you want. Um, and we're talking about the naturally stuff occurs in the body, not the stuff that we may facilitate intravenously yeah. on a regular basis. Adrenal cortex, um, which is made up of endocrine tissue. So it secretes steroid hormones. Um, for a lot of people, when I think of steroids, it's not the stuff that we're juicing up so we can pump some more iron out there at the world, but it's your glucocorticoids, so your cortisol levels, um, which increase glucose and also work as an anti-inflammatory. Then your uh, mineralocorticoids, which are primarily aldosterone for the most part. So that does a lot with your salt and water balance and or ADH, your antidiuretic hormone. And then androgenic hormones, which regulate your gonads and your sex hormones as well. So to that point, the three things I think of when you say adrenals, cortisol, aldosterone, androgens. I kind of group those three as one. And uh, so the the big two that we, we worry about, or I can kind of modulate, hopefully, cortisol, right? And it's action. So you can get new glucose genesis. There's a big fancy term that I'm not going to spit out because I will butcher it. Uh, It also decreases pancreatic insulin production and increases your sensitivity to catecholamines to help with your vascular tone. And it also works with that sodium retention and potassium secretion. Whereas your aldosterone typically is part of your RAS cascade. I'm not going to say RAS system because that's kind of like saying system, system. That's pointless. Aldosterone is a key component of your ROS cascade sodium and water retention and potassium excretion also works with metabolic regulation with your hydrogen ion secretion as well as your bicarb absorption so when i think cortisol i think glucose sensitivity to catecholamines and then there's a portion of that sodium retention potassium excretion uh, and more of your free fluid like your water reabsorption whereas your aldosterone that's more of my working with fluid, working with kidneys, working in that RAS cascade. And it's going to hit on your potassium a little bit more than your rest will. 
and then it's also that the big one is the hydrogen and bicarb absorption. So it's playing with your kidneys, playing with your vascular tone, cortisol system wide. And a lot of things you just mentioned, everything we talk about in resuscitative medicine is a lot of it's electrolyte stuff, which all plays into your cardiacs. And then we talked about glucose, which is an easy fix, but this can mimic a lot of things and make some of your life a little bit more complicated down the road, especially when you start playing with insulin and how it's an antagonist in some cases. So adrenals are not something that you just kind of, oh, I read about it once in a book and just kind of blow it off and we never talk about it again. These can really play a really tricky role with some of the patients you deal with every day. And to your point to that mimic, cortisol also plays an immune factor. So when you're talking about mimics of, is this Addisonian crisis? Is this adrenal insufficiency? Is this just hot sepsis? Do we have an unregulated immune system that's going haywire or what triggered it? So, yeah, it's really easy to get into the weeds. You know, you have your slam dunk, you know, oh, you have your life alert bracelet on that says I have Addison's. Sure. But there's a bunch of differentials that come out. It's, you know, when we we said it during thyroids, that other differential. Yeah, this is one of those other differentials. But if it goes unrecognized, unmissed, you're going to be in a world hurt real quick, and there's not going to be a lot to get out of it. So let's get right into the one everybody thinks of most, or I do anyway, which is Addisonian crisis or adrenal insufficiency. So when we think about Addison's, I think autoimmune, most of them are. It's usually hereditary by a family member, and they basically have a destruction of their adrenal cortex. And so they have low glucocorticoids, um, mineral corticoids and androgens everything's on the lower end of the spectrum um, they basically have a loss of mineral corticoids so they can't regulate salt and water right, uh, like they normally would with their ADH and it causes a lot of their issues more than anything else Yep. so when I think Addison's and it's kind of like a big group of your primary adrenal insufficiencies right so just to go through it, you know, you got your primary, secondary, tertiary. Addison's being one of your key components of primary, right? Anything in your primary adrenal insufficiencies are going to be affecting your adrenal glands themselves. So autoimmune, number one, every time. But another one you can think about is your traumatic injuries that directly destroy that cortex. So it, and it's not your quick one, you know, right out of the gate. This is going to take a couple days to develop. You know, you had somebody in a bad MVC. You know, they might have had spinal damage. They might have had renal lax or anything like that matter. But if they've went into and destroyed that adrenal gland or devascularized the adrenal gland to where it's gone, it's literally to the term you said destruction. It's destroyed. You can develop primary adrenal insufficiency from that. You can have certain uh, types of cancers, congenital malformations in kids, uh, congenital adrenal hyperplasia is a big one, uh, DIC, clot off into your adrenal glands, certain fungal infections. A lot of it, to me, it's your, you think of it no different than any other, to me, any gut organ. If you have an area that's ischemic from any known source where there's not getting appropriate blood flow and not getting appropriate perfusion, it can cause any one of these uh, adrenal issues. So that that's where I group my mind to trying to keep it simple because like we talked about when we got in here, it's easy to get in the weeds. Primary, 
something has hurt your adrenal glands, whether it's autoimmune, whether it's a traumatic mechanism, whether you have clotted off, whether, you know, uh, later on you might have somebody that has had bilateral adrenectomies for some reason. There you go. You have destruction of those adrenal glands completely. So let's talk about, we talked about primary pretty good. Let's talk about secondary a little bit. What, what comes to mind when you think of secondary adrenal stuff? So the normal pathway, and because it's, a, because it's endocrinology, everything has a little pathway, right? Normal pathway, your hypothalamus secretes special little uh, hormone, triggers your pituitary gra- uh, gland. Pituitary sends a hormone down to your adrenal gland. It's a negative feedback system. So pretty simple. It's one, two, three, right? If one is my adrenal glands, two secondary, I'm thinking of a pituitary problem. Something is interfering with the signals from my pituitary down to my adrenal glands. And it can be something simple like your pituitary gland isn't working appropriately and you're just not getting enough of that uh, ACTH. Or it could be a pituitary tumor bleeding in the uh, pituitary gland, pituitary infarction. So, you know, you might have... Uh, ischemic patient, CVA, right? And now they've infarcted, caught that pituitary. They might have it. So you can have your genetic diseases, surgical removal of the pituitary. Say you had a tumor sitting right next to it, and for some reason they decided, hey, it's a good idea to go in there and cut it out. Well, there you go. And then I have it highlighted right here, traumatic brain injuries. So we, we get... Super common. Yeah especially here in Mississippi for some reason. Uh, We're in the peak trauma season right now, you know, Memorial Day to Labor Day. Trauma's kind of prevalent everywhere. Well, if you have somebody that has a severe TBI, whether it be penetrating or blunt, and that area of your pituitary or your hypothalamus, for that matter, has been injured, disturbed, or the blood flow altered, you can get secondary or even to the point tertiary adrenal insufficiency from that your adrenal gland itself is working correctly but i can't get the signal to it it's if that if the communication loop that negative feedback loop isn't working right you'll have a lot of the same kind of issues downstream and like you said i want to stress this it may not be today they have the mvc today they have the bad tbi this may be days or even weeks down the road that you start seeing these symptoms so for us in resuscitative medicine, it may not be the easiest, okay, yes, this is going on today, but those, you know, we transfer a lot of after you patients. You go from uh, one part of the state to the other because they need some, uh, they need OMFS or they need some kind of reconstructive surgery that they can't have somewhere else. Well, now you have to deal with these issues that you may not have had before and then did everybody recognize them? Do you really, because it's such a slow onset or it's such a slow process, oh, yeah, they're slowly decompensating. You recognize the de- decompensation. That's great, but why are they decompensating? Exactly. Did they, you know, they've been sitting in ICU for a, a day or two or longer, and now, you know, most of your traumatic injuries, especially to where if there's any sort of open component to it, talk about a head. You, you have a horrible uh, facial fracture like any type of Lafort or anything that's involved in the sinuses. Well, now you're a day or two down the road. Now they're getting febrile. Now they're getting shocky. Is this sepsis? You know, everybody loves to think sepsis. Or did did something happen inside their head and now they're having some sort of adrenal issue? Well, when you get into actually looking at lab work and stuff like that, and I know we'll go a little bit more in depth here in a minute, you can differentiate primary to secondary to what you put on. 
you're going to have more of a glucocorticoid deficiency in this. So your, your RAS cascade is still intact for the most part. Remember, our adrenal glands are working perfectly. We're just not getting the signal. Well, the body has other ways of regulating aldosterone than just your uh, adrenal signals to stimulate it. Well, if you have a RAS cascade that is continuing down and you're having aldosterone production, your adrenal glands are fine. They're going to continue to produce it. So your symptoms of hyperkalemia, like a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis from that loss of bicarb, uh, that's not going to be there because, like I said, you're, you're, you're still having some aldosterone production through other mechanisms, but your cortisol is what you're deficient in. And that's where the root of this. So you fix the cortisol level and everything else kind of magically falls into place. Yes, so that's one of those... You know, do we need aldosterone or do we need cortisol? You need cortisol because that's the problem. And then the, then the aldosterone will kick in in a normal pathway. It, uh, cortisol may be that key to actually make that lock mechanism work and yeah, or, get everything else going. Or, you know, in these secondaries, maybe you, you know, I'm, I'm no professional endocrinologist. Maybe that you can give them, you know, the ACTH dose that's just the actual diagnostic test. Maybe you actually do the test and see, hey, I got a cortisol bump from it. It has increased. All right, do they need daily cortisol levels, or can we try to supplement something else to catch that up or maybe fix the problem, which is going to be our pituitary gland? Do you want to go into tertiary as well? So, you know, and I have under here tertiary one, two, three. Three is left. We have a hypothalamic issue. Uh, so, and there's an, you know, another way to think about, uh, or another thing that comes into play with that is you can have exogenous steroid administration resulting in the decrease of all the hormones that lead to it. Um, that's another thing to think about, but I will say when you get into secondary, tertiary, this can happen with multiple different disease processes. We said it gets confusing. If you're not, if you were, so because because the pituitary and because the hypothalamus are the master glands, right? They produce everything, you know. So now you can get into mixed pictures. Is your thyroid acting appropriately? Is other endocrinological crises or disease processes going on other than just adrenal? Yes, and that's where stuff kind of gets crossed. Because, you know, we, we addressed hypothyroid pretty heavily in the last episode I was on. If a normal adrenal that is supposed to regulate your immune system is gone. So your cortisol that uh, modulates your immune system is gone. So now say we have a white count through the roof and we're febrile. That's the classic presentation there, right? But if I have hypothyroid in place that you're supposed to be cold. Well, if those mix together, you have somewhat of normal. And that's just where or things... you just have a relatively cold sepsis picture looking like thing. So then it it paints that muddy water of, well, which way do I go? And a lot of times it's really easy to pull a trigger and say, oh, well, I'm just going to overshoot. I'm just going to shotgun it. I'm going to give them a little bit of this, a little bit of this, a good little cocktail going. And sometimes that works, but most of the time you end up finding other problems that you'll end up having to combat later down the road, especially with these steroids. It can be a real challenge, both with the renal injuries that you can cause or the glucose issues. Yeah, and because it's a shock state and because uh, adrenal insufficiencies tend to be hypovolemic, 
your kidneys are going to take a hit to start with, right? You're, you're going to have typically a pre-renal uh, or pre-renal AKI injury, right? So you're going to have a mild bump in your creatinine. BUN is going to be pretty elevated. So you're going to get that BUN to creatinine ratio that's off and everything's kind of pointing pre-renal. Well, then if I inappropriately dose steroids or inappropriately treat the patient, now we're having a whole mess of problems. So, you know, this is one of those that, you know, it's easy to say, well, hey, they're shocky, forget about it, we'll just check a box, we'll give them stress dose steroids. Well, sure, if they're having some sort of adrenal component, that's great. But at the same time, if this is like one of those cold sepsis, and that's one of those hot button issues is, you know, does steroids help in sepsis with relative uh, adrenal insufficiency? Maybe, maybe not. It depends where they're at on that cascade. And that leads me into that fourth category. Uh, so you have primary adrenal, two, secondary is going to be pituitary, three is your hypothalamic, and you can think about people on chronic steroids there. But then you have your adrenal exhaustion or your relative adrenal insufficiencies. And that's going to be more of your, I'm in a shock state and I've burned through all of my normal, you know, cortisol because it's a uh, fight or flight, uh, fight or flight hormone. Well, if I've burned through all of it and I'm still in a shock state, now I'm in a relative or uh, a relative adrenal insufficiency or adrenal exhaustion. And there you have steroids that come into play as well because, you know, there's been a big push in surviving sepsis that shows benefit in uh, certain groups of patients getting uh, IV steroids that are truly septic and in that adrenal exhaustion point. I think it's an interesting note that you, these adrenal exhaustion patients, which we often see, I mean, that's not something uncommon for us and our team, that you have somebody that is so far down the rabbit hole that they are truly exhausted all their resources and you got them on two, three, four pressers. They're not doing well. I've got them on Levo and Epi and while well, I'm doing is supplementing their natural ability for fight or flight, but it's still not working right. Those are the patients that to me, it's like, all right, well, let's think about some of these stress steroid pictures, but at the same time, thinking about resuscitating definitively, what are the downstream effects of giving those drugs? Does it cause a, a you know, an AKI or does it make your renal failure worse? Or do they already have something underlying that we don't know about because this is trauma today and this patient doesn't give you a full medical history. They don't use their iPhone or any of that kind of fun stuff to tell us everything. And then I just cause further harm. So it's a balancing act. That's all I'm trying to say. It's, it's a balancing act that yes, I got to keep somebody alive. I got to give them a fighting chance here, but is it really always the right decision? Yeah. So now talking about just looping back to primary, right, our Addison's patients, if you have somebody who has known Addison's, right, you're talking about signals and stuff that they have, I've only dealt with a very few confirmed known Addison patients, which is another scary thought is that around 50% of your true primary adrenal insufficiencies or Addisonian patients only about 50% are known are going to be found. The other 50%, they're going to go into crisis without any documentation of adrenal issues. It's a discharge diagnosis in a lot of cases. Yes. Uh, so the very few that I've dealt with were known, uh, you know, that I knew I was playing with a true primary adrenal insufficiency. 
they had their no joke, you know, and it's I know it's a rarity in our world. This is when I was working in an emergency room. They came in and they had their bracelet on. That said, I'm an Addison's patient. You know, they'd flown in from out of town and they had lost their luggage. So it's like they had used their one stress dose that they carried in their carry on. And it's like, hey, I'm in a bind. I need help. Here's my endocrinologist number. Took their bracelet off, handed it to us. Like, I want that back when you write the number down. And it's like, okay. And that kind of gets into what I think about is like leading into our treatment algorithm, right? Or would you like to go into. Like no, more let's, of our let's, lab findings. Let's let's talk about some of the treatment. Well, let's let's talk about the presentation, this presentation of it, and then some of the findings you're going to get along with that, and then we'll go into treatment a little bit. So, your true Addisonian patient, to me, it's progressive weakness, fatigue, weight loss. Those are the ones you're going to come in. Hey, I just don't feel right. I have progressive weight loss. Is kind of the primary care patients. They just, it's non-descriptive, general symptoms. I just feel bad. They have a loss of appetite. They're hypovolemic and dehydrated. Those are something that that salt water balance stuff that's totally out of whack. That's going to mess with you a little bit. And then to me, if you figure out, hey, something's off with them. Okay, they're not doing right. Well, we're standard practice for anybody in primary care and emergency medicine is they're going to do an EKG on them. And then you start seeing arrhythmias. Yep. And that arrhythmia is what tells me, all right, something is truly wrong. This is not a, yes, this is progressive weakness. This isn't a today thing. This has happened over a couple of weeks. And we're at this point where, yeah, they're talking to me and doing everything just fine right now, but we could fall off this cliff in five minutes. So that's that, to your point, that's your managed patient. That's your one that's been, you know, that's been typically, they're, they're either at the tipping point initially or they've been managed. And now for some reason they're undermanaged. You know, they're in some sort of stress state and they're able to compensate partially off their normal medication routine. So it could be, it could be somebody that's just had a child, you know, a true stressor. Somebody that's just had a child. Maybe it might be somebody that's, you know, recently had an MI, uh, some sort of physiological stress could be a traumatic injury very well. Uh, something has triggered. It might be sepsis. It could be something as simple as they got a GI bug and now those normal volume losses that they're able to compensate with are no longer working. They get that ischemic injury, that hyperperfusion stuff going on. Yep. Uh, so then again, you, so, and it could have been something as they didn't take their sick day medication. So the established Addisonian patients are on a daily basal rate of some sort of exogenous steroid. Typically it's, you know, PO cortisone, for the ones that can be non-compliant or pref- can't take, you know, three or four medications a day, they might be on a longer acting one like uh, Decadron or something along those lines. Typically, if they're febrile or they're sick, they're supposed to double, if not triple the dose while they're sick. That way they can handle this issue. Well, if you have somebody who's non-compliant, if you have somebody that didn't recognize they were getting sick, now they're here, they're presenting to your ER, they're presenting to your ambulance, and they're sickly, you know, uh, to his, to your point, fatigue, generalized weakness, weight loss, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain. They can be dizzy, hyperpigmentation. When I think Addison's, I think the picture of JFK and he is like olive skin to the max. Like he's got a great tan at all times. So you, you can have this, you know, somebody that's a little, little bit darker than you would expect for the time of year. It's, it's, uh, August here in Mississippi right now. So everybody's rocking a great tan, but you know, that's one of those things, hey, it's January, it's February, it's cold. Nobody spent a whole lot of time outside. Like, 
You didn't just get back from Key West. Yeah, you didn't get back from Key West, or you hanging out a lot inside of a, you know, tanning bed or something. Well, okay, you know, that can kind of point to it. Um, And, you know, one of those weird things, they can have salt cravings because their body knows, hey, I'm deficient in sodium. So they're hunting snacks. If they're, you know, have the appetite, they're hunting snacks. They're wanting salt. Uh, You can even have people that's like pouring salt in their hand and licking it like they are craving salt. Um, And then they're going to have the typical hypovolemic things. Their blood pressure, if it's not low and shock, it might be soft. They're going to be a little bit tachycardic. If you have time, you know, in a hospital setting or an ambulance that, you know, they just walked in or I just got them on a stretcher that I take a blood pressure and, you know, their blood pressure is, you know, hundreds of stolic. Okay, well, then they stood up or maybe I lay them down. It's, it's postural hypotension because they are fluid deficient. Um, so if you do postural hypotension. Uh, do orthostatics on everybody. Yes. There, you, there's your doc friend of mine who said that every patient that comes into the ER gets orthostatics. I don't necessarily agree with that, um, but it's not a bad idea in some of these medical patients, especially these ones you're trying to kind of figure out where they sit without having to go to the invasive stuff. I mean, now we have ultrasounds and CT scans and all those other fun things. And even you can draw labs and do serum and all this other stuff. But sometimes the basics may just be just enough to get you pointing in the right direction. Yeah. And I mean, that's one of those things that, you know, we're talking about how disease processes can get crossed. If this is new onset, I might not have, the patient might not have an idea what they have, but in that resuscitative mindset, if they're fluid responsive or showing signs that they're hypovolemic, I can go ahead and start fluid replacement. And which is one of the key components in any type of adrenal emergency is fluid, uh, keeping a euvolemic or normal fluid status. So if they're dry and they don't have enough fluid, let's bolus them and bolus them until they are no longer fluid responsive. Because, you know, you don't want to get into pulmonary edema and say you have, you know, somebody that has some sort of comorbid condition. Well, you know, maybe three, four liters or that sepsis dose, 30 ml per kg, maybe that's too much for them. You're going to give them fluids until they're no longer fluid responsive. And, uh, you know, for children, you're going to weight base that, you know, if they have some sort of heart condition, let's start at 10 ml per kilo. Or even five. Yeah. I mean, just, just enough to little give them a little sample, a little sprinkle on there and call it a day. And you can do the full, you know, you know, Frank Starlin's curve, there's been issues with it and people talk about it you know oh it's not that accurate it's you know elasticity of your vessels you can use it, it it's it's a general principle of give it's a fluids. guide it's not a it's not a finite art factual thing it's a guide yes give them fluid until they are no longer fluid responsive and then you can start pressors i mean and that's one of those things once again we're just trying to resuscitate but uh <clears throat> you know if you're in a facility or if you are, you know, in a critical care realm or an ambulance that has a capability of lab testing. So in our in our world, we have an ISTAT. You know, we can run a Chem 8 real quick, no problem. Uh, ERs, I think everybody that walks in the door gets a BMP or a CMP. That's like standard practice. So typically on your primary Addisonians, and we've kind of hit on it, you're going to be dehydrated, but you're going to have a low sodium, which is typically not normal. That's one of those findings like, hey, you're dry. You, you have decreased cat refill. You're hypotensive tachycardic. You know, you might have a pre-renal AKI, but you have a low sodium. And, you know, we talked about it. 
you know, when you're looking at labs and you see a patient that has a low sodium, you know, and especially talking about endocrine, one of those is SIADH. You know, oh, low sodium, you know, is this a endocrine? Well, SIADH typically doesn't present with hypovolemic symptoms. That's going to be your hypervolemic. Yeah, that's what I say. It's usually the opposite. So, and in a true primary Addisonian, you're going to see hyperkalemia. And it can be pretty evident hyperkalemia to your point that you're seeing peak T waves on an EKG. If this patient is way down the rabbit hole and they're altered, they've been in this for quite a while, you might see some widening. You might have like a sine wave picture and that's one of those medical emergencies. Hey, we, we got to address this now. But that's to the point of if I'm looking at a lab and I get a pre-renal AKI, low sodium, elevated potassium, salt cravings, they fit this clinical picture, okay, even in a patient without diagnosed Addison's or primary adrenal insufficiency, bam, I'm thinking something's going on metabolically, endocrinologically, let's go ahead and address it. To that point, a lot of the ways they diagnose, especially Addison's in these patients that do present or um, arrive and they're saying, all right, well, we're going to test you for Addison's, they're going to check a cortisol level. And the typical one that most everybody goes with, if it's less than 15 milligrams per deciliter, there's considered, all right, they need some kind of replacement. There's been an issue in the past. Uh, I've experienced it myself, but several others have, I know, where they are transferring a patient that is potential Addisonian prices. They've pretty much diagnosed everything, and they're saying, okay, well, like, look, you got to wait till you get to the receiving facility to give Cortef because we got to draw a cortisol level. You're going to screw up the cortisol level, and you may mess with that. We'll just say it no. Uh, give the Cortef. <laughs> give, give them the steroid to fix their problems so they don't get any worse. If you don't give them the Cortef, all you're doing is allowing that system to continually spiral out of control, and then you may not be able to get them back. Yeah, we're, we're going to confirm your diagnosis before we treat it. And said no one ever. Um, the, the confirming diagnosis is when you give them the Cortef and it magically works. That's the same uh, same response to me as if you gave if you're drawing a cortisol level. So don't don't let somebody buy into that of we need to diagnose it before we give it. If they need the Cortef, by all means, give them the Cortef. I mean, there there's your stress test right there, you know, talking about MIs and, you know, coronary disease. Oh, we'll do a stress test. We just stress test them with Cortef. So, and to your point, there's going to be a low cortisol level. So, and then the other side of it is you'll typically have really marked and elevated uh ACTH levels as well that go with it in primary. Uh, so if you have, and on the other side of it, if you have secondary, you might have relatively low AC, uh, low cortisol, and then you're going to have low ACTH as well. And that's where you go into an ACTH stimulating test. But still, if they're shocky, they have symptoms of Addison's, go ahead and give them the stress dose because if they're that shocky, you're going to be in a rabbit hole. Because one of the key things that comes to my mind with adrenal issues is fluid and pressure refractory shock. So this is, you know, if they're truly in a rabbit hole and... They're on vaso, levo, norepi, and, and epi. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're, they're on three pressors. So they're on the big three and you're not getting anything else. You've given them 20 per kilo and you've slowly or however you had to do it and they're not getting any response to it. There you go. Fire away. I probably wouldn't even wait for the third presser to come out to play me personally. If you've got somebody on two pressers and they're not responding, 
stress dose them. If you're spiking a third presser, think about it. And I mean, if in a pre-hospital realm, not everybody's blessed to have labs that they can look at. It takes us two minutes to have a chem eight, and that kind of helps us point that diagnosis. If you're in the back of an ambulance and you have somebody that you just picked up from their home, might be an airport, might be anywhere. If you've bolused them with fluids, if they have, they were say hypoglycemic because that's a big thing that cortisol plays into. They, you've corrected their glucose, you've bolused them. If you have access to say, you know, I know a bunch of trucks carry dopamine, Levo's coming around. If you've, you know, call got orders for maybe an EpiPush or something like that, it doesn't hurt. Go ahead and stress dose them. If you don't have Cortef, you have Decadron, you have Dexamethasone. So another thing you, you mentioned it here is that hypoglycemia. So the reason that is is they have a low glucocorticoid level. So they part of glucocorticoids is they give you a little bit of glucose bump. If you're low hypoglycemia or you're consistently low hypoglycemia, so I've seen this in the ER, if you start out with a low blood sugar, we give you some D5, D10, D50, whatever, we give you some sugar and we're continually resuscitating them and we're not really giving them any volume, any dextrose replacement, whether it's a D5, a D10 infusion or maintenance. Um, we're just giving them enough, say their levos mixed in D5. And we're mixing it, and it's they're getting that D5, but they're still persistently hypoglycemic. That may be another indicator of, hey, this is a patient that has adrenal insufficiency. Just another clue, another, uh, another, you know, card, if you say, in your deck. Yeah, and that's perfect, you know. So that's another kind of hallmark symptom. So in my mind, shock, refractory, conventional methods, hypoglycemia, refractory to conventional methods. So, you know, for our sodium replacement, because they're typically hyponatremic and because it's kind of like the standard fluid everybody uses, you're giving your saline bolus. I mean, if you have LR, it still has sodium in it, give it. It's not going to hurt. You're giving your sodium. You're giving your LR. You give a push of D50. You hung your 250 bag of D10, whatever you got. Well, how do I continue that maintenance? Well, typically because of their sodium issues along with their glucose, it's very common to find these people with D5NS at a base rate. Now, if they're real, that's typically the starting point. Later on, they might end up on D10 or something along those lines. If I'm in the aircraft that day and I don't have D5NS for some reason, say we just got off a PEDS flight, I gave it. Say you're in the back of an ambulance and you gave your 250 bag of D10 and now they need a base rate fluid that to maintain that glucose. You can make D5NS. It's not hard. You just take a 250 bag of uh, normal saline and add a little bit of extras to it. Well, you can take a full-on liter bag of saline and shoot 100 mLs, 2 amps of D50 in it. Guess what? You have D5NS. Mm-hmm. Now your 0.9 saline might be like 0.8 or 0.7. It's D5NS for all intents and purposes. Uh, and that's something... Not a, not a lot of people think about. You know, you might check a sugar now. All right, we'll do what we have to do. We're addressing problems. Things are busy. Recheck that sugar. You know, if if you try to fix something, always reevaluate your glucose, and that's going to be one of those key indicators. Hey, we gave them something. It didn't get better. I got to give it again. Go ahead and start you a base fluid. These people are hypovolemic. I'm not saying bolus the whole liter of D5NS and mess with their you know electrolytes even more. Start them on a base rate. It's adults, 
125 an hour, pretty standard. You're not going to kill anybody with that. Increase it as necessary. Kids, 421 it out. You know, calculate their base rate, and then you can always fluid bolus on top of it if needed. So we've talked a lot about some of the symptoms you get. The the stuff that really kills these patients or really throws them into a rabbit hole that you can't get them out of is you start having these cardiac abnormalities from the electrolyte shifts. And that's something we've, we've mentioned all of them. The, the big ones to worry about are potassium. That's usually the first one that will get you. But glucose is just as important as same with sodium. If you overcorrect anything too quickly, be mindful of what you're doing. Um, for hyper-K, it's still treated the same way. Uh, still give a Rubens cocktail, which is the insulin, dextrose, uh, bicarb, carb, and the calcium. Oh. What I say? Yep. Still treated the same way. Insulin, bicarb, calcium. Uh, you can throw some albuterol in there if you're, yeah. you want to. It's not going to hurt. What else is there? You wrote my, you're going to make me say it, aren't you? Yeah. The dicks, dextrose, insulin, calcium. Oh, well, it's, it's B dicks, but bicarb, dextrose, it's, it's, ca- insulin, calcium. And then for your real fancy, you know, I'm going to address it later on. You can throw KX Lite in there. Please don't do that. <laughs> Not for me. Like, but yeah, we can that, address other things before we turn it into that. But well, yeah. same room as Coxville. So bicarb, insulin, <coughs> calcium, and then dextrose. And then all you add all those things together, you're still treating the dextrose with the glucocorticoids. You're still protecting the heart with the calcium. Insulin's actually fixing your stuff. And the bicarb, well, honestly, a lot of these patients are hyponatremic. What do they need? A little bit of sodium on top of it. Um, not to mention the renal injury. They're already bicarb depleted. So... All that stuff is really just going to help you out um, with these patients. So, and, and typically, you know, we're addressing these problems as they come up, right? We're, we're given fluid. We're given pressors. All right, we're, we've given D50. Once again, you're in the rabbit hole at that point. You're, you're chasing something. Your, your stress-to-steroids, they're going to help with that shock. They're going to help increase the sensitivity to catecholamines, increase your vascular tone. They're going to help with your glucose because they're going to give that bump a neoglucogenesis. Ha! Didn't screw it up. Uh, you're gonna you're gonna get that bump, right? You're gonna get glycogenolysis. It's gonna help you across the board. If you're in the rabbit hole, if you're chasing these different rabbits and you can't catch what's causing it, stress dose them. It's gonna help you on a couple of different fronts. If nothing else, if you have refractory hypoglycemia, say for just another topic that I've recently flown was a sulfonylurea overdose in a dialysis patient. Guess what? He got stress dosed to help with that. Refractory hypoglycemia, one of the standards of care, is to give a glucose, I mean a, a glucocorticoid, to help with maintaining your glucose. It is never a bad idea. So when we talk about stress dose steroids, let's just clarify this for everybody listening. Stress dose steroids, so Cortef is one of the steroids is probably most commonly used. It's may not be as commonly to get. Um, I've actually found several ERs, small town ERs that don't have Cortef. We carry it on the airframe every day. So the stress dose, there's two different pieces of literature. Stress dose for me in an adult is 200 milligrams. Um, some literature you'll read, you'll say hundred milligrams, but for the most part, if you're truly dealing with a spiraling patient that's out of control or on multiple pressors, 200 milligrams is the dose. You can give other alternatives to Stereocortef if you have them available. Um, to me, another easy one to pull that most everybody's got is Decadron. Yes. Um, 
Pete's dosing is pretty much the same. For the most part, most everybody for adults is doing 10 milligrams. Yep. So, and just remember when you're doing this, you know, to your point, if your protocol says only give them 100 or you're, you've given 200, for the continuum of care, it's about six hours later, you're going to get another dose. Is it going to range 50 to 100? Hey, your protocol, your orders, whatever they were getting. So your first 100 is not the end or first 200 or your first, first 10 milligram dose of Decadron is not the end all be all. They're going to have to get another dose a little bit later on. And it's going to take a minute to kick in. You know, there's memes floating around of, you know, somebody, you know, sitting in a room on fire and it's like waiting for my <laughs> solucortef yeah. to kick in. It's like these onsets can be variable. And whether you have, you know, sufficient IV access, uh, you know, say you only, it's a poor vascular patient and you only have, you know, one point of access and you don't, you have, you know, your three pressors going, well, I don't want to stop all my three pressors to push my steroid. You can give it IM or you can give it IO. Just recognize that your IM is the more, it's going to have a It's even a very, more, more variable absorption rate because you don't know what's perfused for yeah. sure. And then IO is not near as, um, although it goes into the vascular it is more vascular permeable, easy, faster, but it's not proven. Yes, it's not a studied IO. But if you're once again, you're in the rabbit hole, you're chasing, you're in a bind, you you can get into the circulation. Just recognize that IO. There's not a whole lot of studies to say how fast it's going to hit. IM. They already have decreased perfusion to their. You know, if they're having decreased perfusion to their central organs, is my you know, my deltoid is my thigh. With how good is it being perfused to actually absorb this medication? So even IV can have variable onsets. Uh, <clears throat> IM is going to have increased invariability. I think like Cortef, if you look at it, it's like peak onset in 55 minutes plus or minus 50 minutes. Like, yeah, it's not, uh, not very specific there. <laughs> so just, you know, recognize that you're going to be busy for a minute until you can get caught up. And to repeat the dose later on. So if you're picking up an ICU transfer, patient out of the ER, something along those lines, if it's been four or five hours since their last dose, hey, when am I supposed to give my next dose? I don't do it. Do we want a half dose? Do we want to give the 50 to 100 milligrams, 50 milligrams, 100 milligrams? Typically, I think most of the time what I've seen is they get the initial 200 milligram stress dose and the second one's 100 and then they start tapering them off. Yep. And that's, uh, that's a good point, you know. Say they, they got stressed with Cortef, and this is a, for some reason it's bad weather, or they just called ground. Do you have Cortef on your ambulance? If you don't, hey, can I borrow some of yours so I can finish this dose off here in just a little bit? If it's going to be an hour and a half transfer, uh, transport, and they're supposed to get it 30 minutes in, that's one of those things to, let's, let's plan ahead, let's not be sitting on our heels, and then... Proactive versus reactive. Yep. Anything else you have on adrenal insufficiency? Uh, the only thing that I got on here is we talked about our typical patient, right? The, you know, we talked about the curveballs that can happen in secondary and tertiary, and you know the classic presentation with Addison's. And we're gonna—I know we're leading into cushions next. So if you have a patient that's been on long-term steroids, they might not look like your typical Addisonian patient. 
So let's say Cushing's disease. They got, you know, the humpback, thin skin, moon face. This doesn't look like my olive skin JFK picture. They're not thin, look like they've been tanning all year. If they've stopped taking their, you know, Stero their you constant know, steroid dosing, their constant steroid dosing, they might not look like they have Addison's or any sort of adrenal insufficiency. But guess what? They threw themselves into it. They threw themselves into it. And that's one of them, hey, let's go ahead and, you know, that that's where if they have the mentation to give you a medication list, you do the medicine biopsy of, hey, you have this bottle of, you know, prednisone or whatever steroid it may be. And it was for last month or their medication list, you know, for some reason their own some sort of, you know, even the solume, the COPD patients is on solumedrol. Yes. Uh, and that's, it may seem like a relatively benign drug, which honestly, solumedrol to me is just kind of like, okay, whatever. It's no different than a, you know, bag of rainbow skills, but you take it long enough and then you just abruptly stop it. It's like anything, man. It can, it can cause all kinds of rebounds. Yep. And it doesn't have to be just an abrupt stop. If you are on a higher dose of a steroid, and you're supposed to be tapering off of it, and you were inappropriately tapered. You misunderstood your discharge instructions or whatever, and now you're only taking half of what that taper is supposed to be. You can end up in a similar situation. Uh, so just don't miss those when I'm looking for my olive skin thin person. If they've been on steroids for you know months or so, and now they've had a recent dose change, or it's been stopped altogether and they're shocky, try to go ahead and give them a steroid to help you out. So let's work our way into Cushing. So a lot of those patients that take those medicines every day. So typically the textbook presentation is middle-aged women. Um, they have a excess level of glucocorticoids or a cortisol level. And they have a lot of weight gain, but they're thick in the trunk, face and neck, but their extremities are extremely thin. Um, they have a large abdomen. They have the fat pad in the upper back or the buffalo hump, quote-unquote. Um, they have more body and facial hair than they typically normally do. And they're thin-skinned, they bruise really easily, and they just don't want to heal right. Yep. So that's a lot of the primary care stuff. But to me, the weight gain thing, most of the one of the cases I had with Cushing specifically was they gained a lot of weight in a short period of time. It was over a month, and they gained about 40 pounds. So you have this large cardiovascular load that goes along with the weight gain, which then throws them into a whole another level of set of issues. Something I thought was interesting when I first read about this, uh, when I was starting for the FPC several years ago, was the fact that they have excess levels of glucocorticoids. It actually antagonizes insulin. So they ended up being hyperglycemic. So now this is like people that I've seen, me personally. These are your people that came, come in in a hyperglycemic state that is very refractory to typical methods. You know, you work in an ER anywhere, they're hyperglycemic, they're going to get a liter bolus, recheck, you might get some IV insulin. These people, it's not doing anything to, it might even go up. And they may not, and that's, these patients are going to present more of a uh, HHS picture. It's not, they're going to have, going to have a metabolic acidosis associated with it. They're not going to have a huge gap or any of that kind of stuff. They're just literally going to have a high sugar level. Their glucose is going to be very elevated. 
So you give them that bolus and they don't do anything. You give them a little insulin, you put them on an infusion, you're like, okay, what's going on here? And it ends up being an adrenal issue. Yep. But once again, we can't just suddenly stop their steroid. It's got to be a taper because if you suddenly stop it, guess what? Now they can get hypotensive. Now they can show signs of adrenal issues. So there becomes a little bit of finesse to this. Something that also is very common with these patients that have Cushing's or in a hyperadrenal state, um, they have accelerated arteriosclerosis because everything is all kind of hyped up all the time. Um, And they also have uh, hypercholesterolism. So these patients are susceptible to a lot of those things that come along with that. So there's patients that have a lot of rheumatoid arthritis issues and they're on a bunch of steroids for that at baseline, whether it's prednisone or medrol or whatever. But then you also have this cholesterol picture that throws into this hypertension, MI, kidney disease, and then strokes. So these patients end up getting really, really sick, and we see them for the acute uh, acute systems, acute issues of an MI. But what actually threw them into that was well, a hyperthyroid or hyper, excuse me, hyperthyroid, the hyperadrenal state. Yep, and that's one of those that you'll see, you know, months, years, maybe even decades after as they're continuing their therapy, you know, to your point, you know, the lady who was, you know, over a month, the 40 pound weight gain, that's a little different, but these long-term issues where your vascular compromise and stuff like that, that typically doesn't happen overnight. That's, you know, Hey, they're on a long-term steroid. They're having a MI now they're having a stroke. Now that's the understanding what led them to it. Not so much of, Hey, I'm going to stop their steroid and it's going to fix their stroke. No, they're still having a stroke. They need, you know, some sort of lytic. If it's indicated, stopping their steroid right now is probably not the best idea. And be mindful with that. Of, yeah, hey, these are patients that have ongoing issues. We don't need to just abruptly change their system. All it's going to do is just say, hey, let's put the brakes on it and throw everything in whack. Yep. And uh, so something that just came to mind, I know we were on to the cushions, but we had talked about bicarb and sodium replacement in our hypothyroid patients. I mean, hypothyroid, here we go, I'm back a month ago, uh, in our hypoadrenal states or adrenal crises, please don't overcorrect their sodium. Because uh, it's, any- not, it's not just a number. It's not something you can just go to 135 or 140 and say that's normal. Yep. Uh, there's a good saying when it comes to sodium. Uh, low to high, your myelin dies. High to low, your cells will blow. You know, that, that's just something to keep in mind. If you overcorrect their sodium from low to high, their myelin sheath will literally... They're demyelination, and they end up very, very sick and very, very not doing well, and, and they... Seize, and just, it, it gets out of hand fast. And on the other side of it, if you have somebody who is, you know, in some sort of uh, hypernatremic state, say it's cushions, and <clears throat> they're now hypernatremic due to this, you know, chronic adrenal hyperactive state if i drop that down too rapidly you develop cerebral edema and apoptosis of uh, brain cells and that's not good and it can be you have these patients remember a normal is a normal to a person it's not necessarily normal to a textbook so if they have this hyperadrenal disease process and they live with a sodium that's 152 and i drop their sodium down to 130 that's no different than dropping me and I 
have a textbook. Of course, sodium, because I eat very well and I live in Mississippi. <laughs> and so my sodium goes from 135 and it goes down to 115. That's the same process. Yes. It's just a different, just a number. So be mindful with that of how you're going to correct it. Normal is not normal for everybody. Yep. And that's just to those minds that these chronic states, overcorrecting, if you're aiming for normal, anything can get out of hand rapidly. We want to, you know, in medicine, in critical care medicine especially, they're, they're catecholamine depleted, so I'm catecholamine upregulated, right? You get excited going into these, you know, a sick patient or something along those lines. You get, there's a little bit of hype to it. We want to address what's killing them. We want to slowly correct their sodium. I want your blood pressure close to a normal range. I want your uh, glucose close to a normal range. I don't care to have your sodium normal in 10 minutes. That's not a good idea. It's not a roller coaster. We don't want big peaks and valleys, slow rolling hills on correcting some of this. Well, that's when you talk to most of your endocrinology friends, and they'll tell you that it's all a slow roll. I mean, that, that unit's there for a reason, man. Let them, let them hang out in the unit. Let them be slow. Let them get it right the first time. Let's not, to your point, let's not do the roller coaster thing. So you don't see a lot of the endocrinology folks down in the ERs. Because they're looking at the long-term goal. Hey, I need you to do X, Y, and Z in the resuscitative world. Okay, let's get them back to perfusion. Let's get everything back rolling right. And then let's slowly taper everything off. To that point, in transport medicine, in our world, when you be mindful of that. Hey, if they tell you this is what's going on, this is why. I mean, you can ask. By all means, well, hey, why are you doing that? Or what's the schedule with this? But be respectful of, hey, they're doing this really, really slow for a reason. And it's a lot of times in our world, it's really easy to say, hey, I want a result right now. I need to fix this number right now. And most of us are very, I want to fix it kind of person. Yes. But it's very challenging for these patients because they don't do well with that. They don't do well with the quick adjustments. Yep. And, you know, in a resuscitative mindset, which a lot of the times we do is resuscitate, to your point, we want to fix it. We want to fix it now. Let's Let's address things. Sometimes overshooting your target is going to do a lot more detriment to the patient than you think you're trying to help. So pull back on it. Um, now, to address something, you know, our relative shock states, you know, our relative adrenaline sufficiencies, there's a couple of things I tend to avoid if I'm thinking any sort of adrenal anything. One of them is a drug that I like, and I like to use it, especially for RSI, and that is Atomidate. I think I'd be doing a disservice if I didn't bring up Atomidate during talking about adrenal issues. It can cause some adrenal insufficiencies. The literature came from prolonged dosing of infusions of Atomidate. In the ICU, you use a sedation for intubated patients, but at the same time, it's something to be mindful of. If you've already got somebody that's on the cusp of already being adrenal insufficient, do you really want to throw them over the edge? Is this, is that just enough of that tipping point to do it? So some, that, some say one dose of atomidate will never do it. Others will say that it'll do it every time. So I, it's a toss up. If, if atomidate's your drug, be mindful of it. If, if you're in a rabbit hole and you're thinking if anywhere on your differential is adrenal, Take a second. Whoa back just a minute. First and fentanyl. First and fentanyl is a great combo. It works a lot. Uh, and it works I'm, really great for sepsis patients, or it works really well for anybody that has 
not necessarily that primary adrenal insufficiency we talked about, but some of that other stuff that's going on. Maybe they have a secondary or a tertiary or any of that kind of stuff. Those are the patients to me. It's like, hey, I want to help my adrenals out. I may be thinking, all right, let's we're going to maybe give this patient Cortef because they're already on two pressors. I'm doing push dose pressors and resuscitating actively to get this patient back. Maybe a little bit of the fentanyl, a little bit of Versed, maybe a better combination than using something like a Tomidate. And, and, you know, if, the, if that's the drug you want to use, there's a, uh, I'm, I'm going to bring up Michael Griggs because, you know, went and hung out with him was part of our continuing education. And that's one of those things that he brings up and mentioned was, you know, hey, if you're just dead set, Atomidate's the drug I have, it's the drug I want to use, and you're worried about adrenal, let's, why don't we, you know, as part of our resuscitate before we intubate method, why don't we go ahead and give them the Cortef on the front end and then wait just a little bit. Instead of being reactive. You go ahead and give them the Cortef. I'm addressing my adrenal issues. Then you use the Atomidate that way. If there is any relative suppression, you've already tried to address it up front. Now, if you do get into it, it might be later on that you have to redose a steroid. But, hey, it's up front. I've got it. Uh, And that's one of those things that, you know, typically I don't think of, you know, my push dose pressors, getting those ready in case I need them in a RSI situation. I don't ever think of, oh, we're we're using Atomidate. I'll get my push dose. Uh, Here's 100 to start Cortef on that. Yeah, here's 100 to Cortef. And I'm like, what? What, what was that? like? And that's one of those things that is like, all right, I understand what you're doing now. You were They were somewhat shocky. You were worried about it. You addressed it that way. If it was going to become an issue, you've already mitigated the issue. And, you know, since I'm on RSI drugs, I'm not a big ketamine believer. Uh, once again, if you have somebody in a shock state, be careful with the ketamine. It's... Especially overdosing it. The underdosing is, uh, lower doses of ketamine tend to be a little bit more forgiven. And these patients don't really necessarily drop. But if you're given the one to two milligrams per kilo and you're using that for uh, as far as a DSI or as part of an intubation in a patient, that is, especially the prolonged septic patients or some kind of issue that's been going on for a long period of time. Um, and long is relative, right? So anywhere from six to 12 to three or four days. Ketamine may not be your best option because of that catecholamine dump. So when you think of, or, or my thought process in it is, in your adrenal patients specifically, they have, or adrenal insufficiency, adrenal crises, adesomian crises, whatever adrenal issue you're having, they're already desensitized to catecholamines. So when you, ketamine is a direct, has a direct uh, decrease in cardiac output just because of the drug. It's been studied. I'm not giving new knowledge. What's the normal way that you compensate for direct cardiac output issues if your cardiac output's now dropped? You get a catecholamine surge, you increase your heart rate. You get a little bit of bump in vascular tone, and in a normal patient, that's great. You compensate for it. In my adrenal patient that already is catecholamine compromised because they're not responding appropriately to their endogenous or the exogenous that I'm giving them, if I now kill their cardiac output, I've killed them. Your shock state now gets even more shocky. Well, they just there's a finite level of catecholamines your body can make and replenish in a timely fashion, especially yes. when you get to one of those states. And so if that catecholamine dump that ketamine has with it, if you empty the tank, then there's nothing left to give. Yep. And that's one of those, let me think about it. You know, you've got to be conscious in the drugs that we give patients, especially with any sort of 
endocrine disorder of uh, thyroids because we brought that up last last time I was here. Adrenals even more so because you're going to play into two or three disease processes or you know organ systems if you do mess up. Like everybody doesn't, nobody intends to go into a room and hurt somebody. But if you don't think about what you're doing before, you can do it. So just whatever drug you administer, whatever you're doing, do it with caution, do it with thought, do it with what is the best for them at the moment. Any other pearls with adrenals? Oh, don't be scared of don't be scared of steroids. <laughs> don't be scared of little Cortez. Oh yeah, and and to uh, Mr. Johnson, don't let your adrenals be insufficient. You know, <laughs> be be sufficient at adrenals. So if if it's a thought process, go ahead and get uh, your steroids on early. If it's Cortez, if it's Decadron, whatever you have, address it in a timely manner because every minute that you spend hypoperfused is you're going to you're increasing your end uh end organ dysfunction so if they're already having a hit in their kidneys every minute that they're hypoperfused guess what kidney function is going to get worse if they've already got a liver injury it's going to get worse if they're already in some sort of you know sepsis state it's going to get worse and you know, and a lot of these people, there is a tipping point or a precipitating agent that has caused them to go into it. Don't forget to address it. You know, you, you can hit ha- the root cause and then mitigate all the factors that go on with that root. Yep. Whether it be a traumatic injury, whether it be sepsis, whether it be, you know, anything that has precipitated this, address it. You know, you could recognize, oh, they're an adrenal, bam, got it. What caused it? If they have some overwhelming sepsis and you didn't give it, Uh, timely antibiotic therapy they're still going to have the issue that caused it if they're in acute blood loss from trauma give them blood something else i wanted to mention real quick if you're if you're dealing with these adrenal insufficiency patients as far as steroid administration typically the first one we give is a mineral corticoid so so for us it's usually soluble cortef but you can give decadron as well they typically also get a glucocorticoid associated with that for as a secondary a lot of times typically it's going to be solumedrol is pretty much the most of the one is there any other one you can think of so in our primary adrenal insufficiencies you're going to get your glucocorticoid right so you whatever the flavor of the day is decadron medrol uh cortef whatever you got the mineral corticoid that is most common that nobody has Nobody pre-hospital is going to have it. A bunch of your small-town ERs, uh, even some of your moderately-sized hospitals might have difficulty getting it, is going to be your fludocortisone. And that's going to give your aldosterone replacement. Uh, So that's going to be more of your primary symptom or your primary uh, adrenal emergencies because, once again, your secondaries, they still have the aldosterone in place, but it's going to be an issue with the cortisol. So, yeah. If I'm thinking mineral corticoid, I'm going, because your dex and cortef have minimal effect, I'm going fluidocortisone. And now dosing on it, don't quote me on it, because there's, that's not my cup of tea. Well, does it look up? Maybe all right. Hey, that's that's why there's all these fun resources out there. What is it? Uh, the Critical App? Critical Level. App, up-to-date, uh, micromedics, all that kind of stuff. Yep. Pay for your subscription, and that way you can actually find out what the dose is. All right, Matt, appreciate your time today. 
Keep it up with the dreams. Yes, sir. This has been a presentation of Blue Crew Medicine.